intro. Only two chefs remain to compete in a culinary showdown across Skype. Big flavors, bold flavors, big, bold, subtle flavors. This week on Top Scallops, at stake, the winner will win three gallons of Hidden Valley Ranch dressing. And an appearance at the Food and Wine Classic at Aspen. It's a classic. With a podcast sponsorship furnished by Backblaze and the coveted title of Top Scallops. Oh my god. I've gone full morning zoo. I've never been on a podcast with a gong. This changes everything. Oh yeah. It really gives you, it gives you a chance to center yourself. Hello, chef. Chef. We chef. Chef man. We, thank you, chef. Merlin, did you did you like this episode of Top Chef? Yes, I like this episode of Top Chef. Uh, I thought it's I, I I think it's good. I like these people. I like this season. Uh, I, I think there's lots to like about it. I thought I, I wasn't sure at first if I liked the elimination challenge, but now I think I like it. I uh, the thing I learned from this episode is the uh, I I learned the word lacquered to refer to meat. It's a technique to put sauce. I just think it just means brushing sauce onto meat. But I have never, I've never heard that term in my life. And this week, half of the contestants made lacquered meat. This show is a revelation to me. I am learning new things about the English language every week with this show. You can get a lacquered pork belly in uh, New Orleans. Cost you about 150 bucks. Yeah, uh, I, I had not known about lacquering. Uh, how is that different from other methods of cooking? Uh, well, in my very cursory 10 seconds of Googling it, it appears to be, uh, you know, like brushing the sauce on with like a paintbrush. And then maybe like like finishing meat with the sauce on so it like caramelizes a little bit. Sounds so good. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't sound bad. I just it's just like I like these. Th there's like every season there's like a fad ingredient or technique that will sweep right. through the season and everyone will do it. I feel like maybe a few years ago everyone was using something called vadavan. Uh, what is that? I don't. I, I don't know what is that. A spice mix. I don't know. It's I, definitely definitely true for foams. For sous vide, uh, for various kinds of oh, remember it was all about uh, what they were then calling molecular gastronomy. Yes, that was that was the uh, that was the hot topic. Yeah, vadavan is, it's a it's a spice mix. It's sort of a curry based spice mix. So it's an Indian spice mix. Oh, I see. Oh, are yeah. you talking about the onion based uh, curry uh, ingredient, vadavan? Yes. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's got cumin. You got your brown mustard. You got fenugreek. Sounds good. What's in uh, what's in five spice? I don't know. I don't. I don't ever use. Pop quiz. Never, Pop quiz. Hot shot. What's in Five Spice? I have no idea. I don't use Five Spice. I had it once. It's pretty cuminy, I think. Five Spice. Uh, five Spice powder. Yeah. Oh, star anise, cloves, cinnamon, uh, Sichuan pepper, and fennel seeds. <laughs> <laughs> I want a soundboard now. Oh, I've got it. I've got the real life soundboard right here. Ching. <laughs> I've often thought I wish I had some kind of low-key vest that I could wear with a series of buttons <laughs> on it. It would be kind of like a cross between a denim vest and a and a uh, sampler where I could just walk around. And in this case, I would want to be able to go boom or boom boom or shing, like all the sick burn sounds. I could see, I could see. Uh, I feel like that's more of a John Roderick look. I could see him. <laughs> I could see him very comfortably in the one-man band outfit. There was a period of time where John would enter every room with a keyboard preceding him, and he would press one button on the keyboard and go, until everyone he knew wanted to kill him. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a good way to go. So this um this wait, I had one this, uh, I had one other question in my in yeah, my go, notes go. for you. Uh, I I don't want to uh, reveal the location, but how was your trip? You did some traveling. Oh God. Uh, it was pretty good. I, we could talk food for half a second here. Yeah, I had to take a, a plane twice last week. I went to Washington D.C. Uh, I arrived on Thursday. Had a, had a gig with a very nice, very amazing group. Imagine if a hospital, a well-known hospital in Washington, D.C., imagine if they had their own internal IDEO group, mm -hmm. IDEO-style group, mm -hmm. whose job it was to introduce design for patient-centric care. So they're redesigning the shopping carts in the hospital. <laughs> it's a very simple integration. No, no, but, like, it's, it's amazing. You walk into this place, and it's all crazy walls. It's all Post-it notes everywhere. And what this group does, it's at Johns Hopkins, and what they do is they are charged with trying to improve like using design and technology to try and improve the experience for people who are in the hospital, which is, if you've ever been in the hospital, is something that needs a lot of improvement. So, I mean, down to stuff as simple as like prototyping a way for a mom who had a, a very rough C-section and hasn't seen her newborn for two days to have like an iPad. So they could at least like see the kid in, wow. the, in the room and interact and everybody apparently just breaks down in tears. All kinds of stuff down to like having a prototype new hospital room where you try to figure out all these different ways where if you've never it's sort of like that Harrison Ford movie where he's the doctor and he doesn't realize how crappy it is to be a patient until he becomes a patient mm -hmm. uh, regarding Henry I think it was called and I, I found that to be very true I mean the people who work in hospitals are amazing but the experience of being in a hospital leaves a lot to be desired so that was a fantastic group so you you went to to do a talk yeah, I talked to them about their, they're very interesting. Uh, I guess I can say this. It's a group called the, the Sibley Innovation Hub and inside of Johns Hopkins. And so what they do is it, it was a visit that was supposed to work on several levels, whether it does or not, they can tell me. But I um, want to talk about meetings and group interactions and team stuff. And so we talked about, uh, I did my meetings talk that I've done before, like 10 ideas for improving your meetings. But it's the idea of like, how can we improve this internally? How can we also kind of socialize this idea inside of our organization? And then I guess maybe potentially someday, how can we like almost like outsource this information to other groups? So it was a super, super interesting visit. That's very cool. I'm curious, how much of, uh, uh, so I remember when I sort of first became aware of your work, it seemed like you were doing an awful lot of traveling and speaking, like maybe almost every month, every week. Yeah, that's back when I used to be Merlin Mann. I, I, uh, yeah, I used to do a lot of that. I got pretty bogged down for, I guess, almost two years with trying to write a book. I started doing more podcasts. And, yeah, I used to do a lot more of it. And, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's partly the demand has gone down while my prices haven't. Uh, and at the same time, it's, you know, as you know, it's incredibly disruptive to travel. I, you know, I hate to whine about that because people are paying me to do stuff, but... Travel is rife with complications, and so I try to only do it for folks I really, really like who can pay the uh, rack rate. You know, I've I, I've definitely learned this because, like, I when I started getting asked to speak at stuff, you know, I think to to me it was like I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Like, you know, someone's going to pay me, you know, not not a lot, but for you know, for me, but uh uh, uh you know, when I get booked, I, I don't get paid a lot or anything, but like they're going to pay me, you know, whatever, or even just cover my travel, and I get to go and like talk to people and meet people at this cool conference, but. And it sounds so good until you really start getting into the details of it. But it's like, I mean, there's potentially weeks of preparation beforehand of like figuring out what you're going to say and putting it together. Uh, it's never just like you get to the conference and you give the talk. There's like days of travel and anxiety and packing and trying to arrange your life around the trip. And then it's not like you get back and you get back right back to work because you're exhausted. So it's like it can wipe just like weeks of work out of your schedule. Uh, I, I realize this is not germane to the episode except in as much as it is. First of all, uh, the last two nights I have slept 12 hours each night 
that's how hard it is for me to bounce back sometimes. Also, I'm getting a little bit of a cold because I've been in the fart tube twice and had to like breathe people's <laughs> bacteria. Uh, so I'm getting a sore throat and lower back pain. Uh, thank you, Planes. But um, there is a pivot to to Top Chef in some ways, though, because uh, I think one of the things you and I have, have we talked a little bit about this off air, but also just like how do you be smart about going into a situation? Okay, so one thing in your example of like somebody's interested in having you speak somewhere, that's that's a huge honor. They want to give you money, almost unheard of. But with many situations in life, you go into it as maybe a little bit too much of an optimist, by which I mean you you find the facts in this that are positive, which is a good thing in life, but you also tend to minimize the downsides and risks. And it doesn't take too many experiences of even 50% of the downsides and risks happening to make you a little bit reluctant to always jump in. So if you're speaking, that could be stuff like you get, you know, there's travel, there's delay in travels, there's last minute changes that, you know, you have to change flights and pay for that on your own. You have to get paid for the stuff. It can sometimes take a long time, especially with large groups, and that comes out of your pocket. But it's also just, you know, like you say, that's a week that I do something somewhere else is almost, even if it's only two or three days, that's essentially a week. That's one fifty second of the year gone. Right. And so on, on the show, I think it's germane also because look at how many contestants are obviously extremely talented at a certain kind of cuisine a certain kind of ingredient or a certain kind of approach, let's say. And it's funny because if you go into that too single-minded about it going well with what you're good at, you don't end up doing the best work. And you end up, you know, the people who do great at this are the ones who are flexible and kind of thinking about contingencies. And boy, was this ever a week where we saw that. Yeah, it also, you know, one other um, sort of angle on the Top Chef thing is it, it definitely, you know, um, having like a crazy travel schedule and knowing what that's like in my life has given me a lot of sympathy for the stress that like reality show contestants are under because you, you really go a little bit crazy I think when you're you know away from home for a long time and it's like you don't always have the things you need and you're tired all the time um, and then on top of that to every day have to wake up put on a good face for the camera you know present the best version of yourself that the world is is going to ever see and perform at the peak of, of your abilities in a creative competition it's just pretty unbelievable. I, I agree. And it, it's almost, it's one of the reasons I have uh, so much respect for people who do like special forces work or people who are Navy SEALs, where from the beginning, their training is to teach them, you know, not about how this will probably go well, but to constantly be confronted with impossible situations by design. It's like an ongoing Kobayashi Maru to, to be trained to be a Navy SEAL. And apparently culminating with like throwing you into a tank of water with your hands tied together and you're supposed to be able to get out of the water without breaking the bond that holds you in the water, right? Stuff like that. And to me, that's, that's what you're confronting on some, some level with all of this stuff is you're exhausted. And then, I don't know if you're like this, but I live a lot of my life like in my own head and doubting myself and coming up with you know, reasons this will go terribly. And you can't do that on this show. Or you're going to go way off your game. You're going to panic. You're going you're gonna to choke. And you're going to end up making dumb decisions that you didn't have to make badly because you've gotten emotional, you're tired. So yeah, I mean, I think it definitely goes to, to this. And now, gosh, with all this travel on this show, this I think about that on Top Dress a lot of the time. I mean, it just seems like that show must be so grueling. Yeah, you know, I don't not to uh, uh, pull draw this tangent out uh, forever, but the, you know, the other thing I think about all the time is like um, a lot of people. I think when you're starting a creative project, you have this kind of pressure on you, right? Where it's like very much sometimes starting a new creative project especially if it's successful, it's very much like being thrown into the tank of water with your hands behind your back, right? It's like suddenly everything is out of control and you're dealing with, you have all these impossible, you know, Kobayashi Maru situations being thrown at you one after another. 
And there's a way that that creative energy, you can, you know, the right kind of personality, you can sort of feed off of it. It's exciting. You react to it. It becomes part of your art. It becomes part of your project, whatever. And there's some people, I really admire the type of creative personality who's able to keep that, like they're able to embrace that kind of change and that kind of instability and, and make that a part of their life and a part of their career. But there's another direction this can go where it's like when you try desperately to like control everything around you and this is where you wind up building the uh like your your hearst mansion uh or you know you wind up you know right it's like you build your aviator mansion where it's like you have to control every little piece of of the kingdom and have it be a certain way and have total control over everything around you um and that's sort of a sad creative death to that but it is like the logical conclusion of uh, a lot of my own tendencies that i see in myself which is sort of weird yeah, it's it's weird in that it's painful and personal, but it's not weird in that I, I think it is kind of universal. There's a slide that I added to this meeting meeting talk because uh, it was kind of late and I, I, I was I was having some wine, but I added a, a slide to this talk where I was talking about how much I think it's potentially interesting to think about running your business a little bit like you're um, like you're the guy in The Martian, you know, like where you're stuck you're stuck on Mars and you've got this situation that seems impossible, and it's this thing that he goes through this iteration. This is just a first draft of this, but the iteration basically is something like do some math make a decision, and then implement some kind of action, and then repeat. And I think that's part of what makes you know, that movie so enticing, is that each, each decision that he makes in this incredibly resource-constrained environment has an effect on what he can do next, right? Like if he uses that water to make these potatoes in a spaceship, he's going to have to go find a way to make more water and so forth. I think what you're describing is, like, especially when you're a young creator, it's not unusual at all to feel like, oh, the exact thing I wanted to make is clearly not a plausible opportunity now. And like somebody who's been at it for a while will go like, could I, could I still make something good with this? But the really ninja person acts like it's an entirely new set of circumstances to some extent, right? Like you have to remember all the rules, but you're going to basically clear all of your old ideas away and say, okay, what have I got today? I got this much nitrogen. I got these potatoes. I got this plastic sheeting. What can I do now? And that, that to me, like if you can get to that point and not lose your cool, that is a skill, a super skill that will serve you well in Top Chef and in life. Well, I think I think that is a very good segue into the. Uh, should we start with the uh, the quick fire? The what, what what do they call it? The high stakes quick fire. High stakes quick fire. Yeah. High stakes quick fire. So this week, uh, they are they're in a vineyard, which I'm sure was a sponsorship, but I've already forgotten what it was. And the uh, challenge was to use uni, and to they had t very short amount of time. I think 20 minutes to sort of make a dish that showcased uni. The uh, it was the Sanford Winery. Ah. The Sanford and Sons Winery. That's <laughs> 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 stupid. <laughs> um, yes, and uh, man, oh man, did I ever freeze up when I saw the urchin. Woo! Now, do you have you eaten uni before? Yeah, I got a question here for you on my list. Yeah, I have had uni. Uh, I'm so bad at sushi uh, that when I order it, I sometimes forget what stuff is. I've had uni mm -hmm. a, as a uh, you know as a sushi dish, but my gosh, what an intimidating item to hand to somebody! It's the fact that humans figured out how to eat that. That someone looked at that and was like, "That's that's probably good. Whatever's inside of there, let's 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 get that open and see what we can eat in there." Like who would who would do that? It's the most. I mean, for people who didn't see the episode, it's a black. It's sort of a black spiny sphere. Like if I had to draw. 
if I was okay, do you know this thing where it's like where there's the radioactive waste dumps in the desert that are going to be figure out a physical graphical way to say to people without regard to language or millennium or era, bad stuff happens here. Stay away. You can't use signs. You can't use busters. How do you let people know? What is the universal way to say to somebody bad things will happen if you go in here? Yeah, I would put an uni on it. I think that anyone would look at that and they would go, that is radioactive and I will die. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> describe it. I mean, it looks like it looks like a, like a cartoon explosion. It looks like something Jack Kirby would draw. Yeah, it's like a it's like a textbook example of like a spiny, upsetting thing that would that would injure you uh, or kill you if you ate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I was going to ask. I mean, I don't want to get ahead, but I was going to ask you if you were handed like an urchin, would you have any idea what to do with it and how to cook it? Uh, well. Only, I think this is one of those things of only because I've seen it on Top Chef. So I've seen people, you know, use the cleaver and you split the thing in half and then you scoop out the guts. Right. And the, the nice part, I guess, is judging by the way that Cajun Man 5000 went after that thing, he, he did it like he was an executioner. Like, oh, I'm going to cut this thing into two pieces. Hoo-ah! And so I guess that the insides don't have to be, it's not like, it's not like um, keeping a yolk from an egg intact. It's okay if you massacre the insides a little bit. Yeah, it's all sort of a gelatinous mush inside. And then the other thing that I'm not clear on is I don't think you eat the whole insides. I think that there's probably just one one part that's like the liver or some some the gonad. The go oh right. Is that really it? The gonad? Well, that's what they said on Top Chef. It yeah. yeah. It must be true. Yeah. I they can't say it on TV if it's not true. Again, I just found this quote from Jonathan Swift. Uh, he was a bold man that first ate an oyster. And like what a great way to put it. Yep. You know, that that's the thing is who had who thought, you know, why don't we take this thing that looks a little bit like the universal symbol for don't go in here, there's nuclear waste. Let's cut it open and then let's find which part of it is the dick and eat that. Is the gonad the gonad is is the balls? Oh, I mean I, I think of it as the the entire uh, superstructure uh, of recreation. Now I don't know if you can have a boy girl or boy girl or otherwise uh, urchin. I don't know how that works. Hmm. Are they like are they like analids? Do they uh do they go to like analid bars and it doesn't matter who they uh, pair up with? Let me, uh, I'm going to do some research. Yeah, that'll help people. Yeah. Uni, I'm trying to remember what it looks like. Uni's, is it kind of like, I feel like on sushi, is it kind of orange? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, it's an orange snot and it's, uh, so you would, uh, you would just have it with like rice, I think. And it's very subtle. It's sort of a sweet, briny, a little bit of bitterness. It's a very Japanese food in that. So it eats, eats a little bit salty. Eats a little bit, <laughs> eats a little bit salty and it's very Japanese. I'm um, Japanese food. Uh, is all about uh, texture, specifically uh, crunchy, uh, chewy, and slimy textures, and just like uh, ultimate uh, umami without uh, too much salt. And and uni kind of ticks all those box uh, boxes. And it's uh, um, that was that was the f I've had uni a few times in the U.S., but uh, I, I had it on my trip to Japan recently, and I I that was the first time where I had it, and I was like, I understand why people go to the trouble of eating this. That 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 can be really really good. Yeah, sometimes, I, I think the first time I had uni, I had this friend of a friend uh, that I would never call my own friend, who's like the dare food guy. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, you can't get it hot enough for me. I'm like that guy. You know, well, cook it like you eat it, Thai guy. And like he was really into being the guy at the table who ate stuff nobody else would eat. So he, he ordered something. It looked like there had been some vivisection that had been done in the kitchen. <laughs> and that's the first time I think I had it. It's not one that I order. I order a lot of the middling white, white guy sushis. I get a lot of your, I get your Maguros. I get your, uh, uh, you know, the uh, yellowtail and stuff like that. But uh, if it comes in a platter, I'll eat it. But what a, what, a, what a challenge. So, yeah, of course, I guess you get that out of the Pacific, and then you bring it to the winery, and then you're going to make that into something. Yeah. So they had 20 minutes, so everyone was, was very 
rushed, and I think that's a tight. That is a really that that is a tight deadline. Man, I can't. I don't think I could make anything in twenty minutes, and especially like the you know whenever they're on location, like at the winery or whatever, the equipment's not great. I mean, they have these little you know gas burners and and uh, seems like pretty limited tools. Like you know the pantry's limited, so the one the one woman couldn't get the eggs that she wanted, um, who wound up being in, in the elimination. Oh, was that uh, Giselle? Giselle? I can't keep everyone's name straight this season yet. Giselle, but I think so. see, I have this. I made my own little index here to remember who's who. Let's see. Giselle, long curly hair, cast as talky. Yeah, that's Giselle. And then, oh, man, you know what? We skipped. You know what? I, I got to go back for a second because I forgot about this. On the way to the vineyard, we skipped over the whole road trip thing. And there were just a couple of things that I loved. So, first of all, I, this episode, I'm so glad I picked Kwame as my guy last week. Kwame is totally my guy. I, he revealed uh, on the trip to the vineyard that he, uh, at the beginning of his career, he sold candy on a train to raise money to start a catering company. Like, yeah, how that's endear- amazing. How endearing is that? Absolutely. And as we've learned from World War II movies and reality shows, you got when, when you get somebody's touching backstory, you, you want to watch them that episode. Now, with Kwame, that went okay. But we got some of Francis's backstory, too. Yeah. The other thing I loved was, yeah, that was my favorite Francis quote from that road trip was that one guy, I can't remember, one guy was like, oh, I love taking uh, road trips. My daughter and I, we always get a bag of Swedish fish. Oh, single single dad guy. Single dad guy. And then Francis was like, yeah, uh, when I was a kid, I ran away with the car because my household was really broken. <laughs> Sorry, Francis. <laughs> We're going to be on a lot of year-end lists, uh, Max. Yeah. Uh, and then there was, was that also where there was rapping? There was rapping at one point. Uh, that Kwame, may have, Kwame did a little rap. Kwame might have done, yeah, that was right in the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a good. It was just like I just like this group of chefs. Like they, I think they have like good, good chemistry together. I like hearing their their stories. Like cause I feel like sometimes the the the, the cast on Top Chef is, is a little. They can be a little professional. It takes them a while to like warm up to the cameras. And this is just like a, right from the beginning, just a super fun chef. Um, so in the in the uni challenge. Oh, and then I have one other quote that I wrote down. Uh, the uh, Cajun Cajun uh, man five thousand uh, chef whose name uh, actual name I can't remember. Uh, he was like my favorite Isaac. Isaac. He said he goes my favorite thing about uni is it tastes just like good old Louisiana crab roe and I'm just gonna smear it on some potatoes. And then he sabered open a bottle of wine and I was like this guy. I was like that is insane and this guy is definitely out on this elimination challenge. But his thing was awesome. Apparently it does taste just like uh, good old Louisiana crab roe. <laughs> We wound up with a with that the the sort of uh, sudden death challenge situation. Yeah, so everybody did their stuff. Giselle was mad because she couldn't find eggs. Um, she was at sixes and sevens, uh, and then of course, uh, what's his head, uh, handsome man, did find eggs because I guess everybody thinks eggs and uni go together. Yeah. So, and then she she got the short end of the stick. They did not like her dish, and then they had a little twist, which is now tell me if I'm right here. She picks one person to go up against. Uh, who didn't? Who who was not the loser? She was the loser. And then if she can beat that person, according to the judges, she gets to stay in. Yeah, and and then it she did, which is sort of I mean, uh, poor, I, An- poor Angelina, she's so feisty. Yeah, I like her a lot, and uh, I felt like she. I feel like she's getting picked. Like in all these contests, people pick her as the opponent because she's the young. I think she's the youngest chef there. Absolutely, she's twenty four, youngest one on the show. So they hand them an ostrich egg. I've never handled an ostrich egg, but boy, is an ostrich egg ever big? <laughs> it's it's a big. What did they say? It was like a dozen chicken. Giselle eggs? said it was like a dozen eggs. She said she tasted it, I guess raw, and uh, she said it tasted like uh, chicken eggs. 
There you go. So let's see. Uh, so uh, G- uh, Giselle's dish was uh, was not the best, and there was no elimination on the uh, on the uh, uh, sudden death uh, quick fire. And uh, the chefs uh, packed up to go to the next challenge. Oh, well, once again, you know, another ping for poor Angelina. You know, yeah, I feel and bad for her. She is kind of the the whipping girl in some ways. For you know, she's sort of the goat sometimes in this show. I did put down in my notes that Padma said that one of the dishes uh, uh, eats salty. Does it eat salty? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 we really lacquered this show with the uh, eats eats blank. I mean, if it's if they said form. eats saltily, I would still think it's clunky. But have we honestly started using adjectives to modify verbs? Anyway, don't get me into it. Don't get me into it because I'm already arguing with people on Twitter about this. I, I'll say, I'll say, I have I have a perfect emoji that summarizes my feelings on the matter that I'll send you. Thank you, mm-hmm. Professor. Actually, is always out there to explain to <laughs> <laughs> explain to me to grammar explain what I'm wrong about. Uh, so it's actually. Uh, uh, the middle voice. Are you familiar with the middle voice? I'm like, yeah. Is it the middle voice where we use adjectives to uh, to improve uh, verbs? Because that's a new thing for me. I thought we already had adverbs, and we agree we're, we're going to use those so much. Literally. Getting into the uh, the elimination challenge here. Uh, so basically, they pair the chefs up into teams of two. And they tell the chefs that it's going to be a surf and turf challenge, and they sort of have to rush up to this counter of proteins, and they each grab one. And a lot of the chefs get ones that don't really go together, so they're sort of scrambling to improvise a dish where, like, maybe they'll take this uh, the seafood that doesn't go with the the uh, the turf portion, and they'll make like a sauce so out it, of was it. it. Was it rock cod and lamb? Yeah, was that, that was no, one it wasn't of the rock cod, but it was no, no, it was uh, crab and lamb. Was that it? It was, it was something with the lamb that just did not go together. Uh, pretty, pretty classic Top Chef, as we'll see, switcheroo, but great setup. You know, it looks like a straightforward challenge, the kind of team challenge you would see early in the season, and you know, already pretty exciting because you're gonna you're gonna get the friction of two people with different points of view. You're gonna have the kind of resource constraints. Already pretty good challenge, and people were starting to freak out a little bit, but there were some nice team ups. And uh, you know some 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 cool and talented people ending up on the same team. Yeah, my uh, so Grayson had immunity from the uh, uh, from the uh, quick fire. So she. We just say aloha for Grayson, who still looks like she's about to cry every time she's on camera. Uh-huh. But good for her. I thought she hated being on the show, and now she seems like she's bucking up a little bit. Well, she's she had a great episode. She's doing uh, extremely well. Isn't that arguably maybe the single biggest, apart from Eat Salty, the, I think one of the biggest pieces of feedback we've gotten, meaning two or three people, is all saying, it. does anybody else think that Grayson seems like she just doesn't want to be on the show? Yeah, and she is, whenever the judges have anything to say about her food that's negative, I, I kind of like this. She does not, I mean, she's not taking any guff from the judges. She's just like, uh, she's just like, I'm sorry. She gives them a big city apology. She says, oh, uh, I'm it's sorry. A huge city, and she, she pushes back. Exactly. I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry you're disappointed. Merlin, I don't know if I ever told you this. So I heard you and John talk about, uh, you know, the phrase, I'm sorry you feel that way, and referred to it as a big city apology. Yeah. Which is something that you made up. Uh, But uh, I did not know that. And I think I said that in like an interview with a newspaper or something. And I was like, you know, I hate a big when people do a uh, uh, say, I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, they uh, they call that a big city apology. (laughs) <laughs> as as against the small town apology. Yeah. And in that case, the small town apology was a, I think like maybe a Romanian woman where John, John had like complained about the quality of service in a hotel to a woman who looked like she was about to be taken to a camp. <laughs> and he felt so bad. She's like, I am so sorry, sir. <laughs> and he felt terrible because a small town apology is a way of saying, 
not necessarily it could be about class and power, but often a small town apology is about is an, is an apology in the true sense of the word, it, which is I acknowledge that I did the wrong thing here. I handled it badly. I'm sorry that I caused any kind of damage with this, and I would like to make good on it. That's what an apology is. A big city apology is like, oh, maybe you'd like to try a different Abercrombie and Fitch. Yeah, it's just one of those two or three things I heard about on on uh, Roderick on the line, and then they sort of it sort of somehow filtered into my brain, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna show off to this journalist that I know a cool phrase. And now, if you Google, I think if you Google it, it's one of the uh, it's one of the results for that. And then uh, oh, that's so, so great. Someone was like, "Yeah, I don't think that's a thing." And then I was like, "No, no, I heard it from uh, I heard it from uh, John and Merlin." The story of John Roderick uh, taking his broken bag was it North Face going going back to the to the uh, to the he, there was a time when I could save your life this gear. That's a classic. That's a that's a early episode. That's a great episode. Episode fourteen. You just know that? No, I looked it up on the Google. Oh, there you go. Okay. So we've gotten to people are and so we're getting ready to go to the break. People are the uh, the preview of the break is that Kwame is worried because uh, he's got crabs. That's right. And who's Kwame was paired with? Now I can't remember. I'm gonna cheat a little bit here. I'm cheating. You're not gonna believe what I'm doing. I'm doing the worst kind of cheating. I'm looking at a recap page. It was Wesley versus Amar and Grayson. Grayson got to pick the two people she wanted to go against. Okay. So Wesley, the messy, uh, the messy guy. Uh, you got Amar the Dominican, Dominican versus uh, Grayson, Philip versus Jeremy, Angelina versus Giselle, Kwame yes. versus Chad. I think that's handsome single dad, single dad guy. Yeah. Isaac versus Carl. That's Cajun man versus handsome chicken boy. You got Karen versus Marjorie, uh, Jason versus Francis. Why don't we take a quick sponsor break? It's always a great time for a sponsor break, Max. All right, let me. Uh... Was that a toilet flushing? That's not cool. <clears throat> there we go. Uh, all right. Well, this uh, this episode of uh, Top Scalps and every episode of Top Scalps is sponsored by our friends at Backblaze. Uh, I don't have any notes for the uh, sponsor this week, so I'm just gonna uh, I'm just gonna wing it. Uh, so Backblaze is an unlimited, unthrottled backup service. It works for your Mac or PC, and it just sort of runs in the background, silently backing up all of your work, so that you never have to think about it. And if something goes uh, calamitously wrong, you can just go on their website or you can use the Backblaze uh, mobile app for iOS and Android and you can recover your data. Uh, Merle and I have talked about that you can use this as almost sort of like a, uh, a revision control system for your files. You can get old versions of your files uh, one by one or if you like drop your computer in the toilet you can actually have Backblaze send you a whole hard drive with all of your stuff on it and you're back up and running in no time. And uh, my favorite part about Backblaze, uh, as someone who winds up uh, paying for a lot of these kinds of services, is there's no gimmicks, there's no add-ons, there's none of that other nonsense. It's just $5 per month per computer, and that gives you unlimited backup. It's never, they never like hit you up for more, uh, more storage uh, size or anything. I don't exactly know how that pricing works for them. It seems too good to be true, um, but there it is. And I've, I actually use it on uh, multiple machines, and it uh, has saved my ass uh, many times. So uh, my thanks to Backblaze. Uh, for sponsoring the Top Scalps podcast. Oh, and not only that, but also they have Backblaze has a free trial for listeners of the Top Scalps podcast. If you go to backblaze.com slash scallops, uh, they will set you up with a free trial, and you can uh, try this yourself. Do it. Well worth it. It's, uh, it. it's a godsend to be able to go in and just one at a time grab files that you need, and knowing you know you got a belt for your suspenders is a nice feeling. Did uh, Merlin, have you ever had any times in your life where you had like a, a catastrophic data loss? Yes. Yes. Yes, I have. 
I don't want to make force you to relive the trauma. So I don't want. I don't want to trigger. I don't want to trigger you. There's two kinds of people. Here's the here's the thing, Max. There's two kinds of people in this world. There's people. There's people who have not yet had a catastrophic catastrophic data loss, and people who back up slavishly. That's that's the truth. And you know, none of us are ever really 100. percent And like I said last time, you still have to go and test your backups. But now, I mean, I really believe in to the extent possible having a multi multifaceted approach to backup. And I think, you know, one upside of our modern uh, cloud-based economy is like we think everything's taken care of, but you cannot always be sure that that is the case, that it's complete, that it's up to date. You may have discovered that this thing you thought was updating was actually not grabbing this entire drive or directory, this really folder, as you say, in the Mac world, is important to you. So, you know, you need to go and make sure that, and the nice, like you said, not to drag this out, the nice thing about Backblaze, you just turn it on, it runs, it does its thing, and it's, it's just always there, and it never bugs you again. And it's redonkulously cheap. I get 2.7 terabytes backed up for $5 a month. Yeah, I, I mean, I've spent, like, most of my life doing stuff on computers. And especially when I was younger and I was broke all the time, like, I just kept ha – I've had so many times where I lost work. I've lost whole computers. Like, I've lost, you know, years of stuff that I'll just never get back. And it, it just – it sucks so badly. Uh, so the fact that Backblaze is so easy to use and, uh, and I don't have to, like, think about it or do any special actions. It just sort of takes care of itself. Like – that $5 a month is, like, one of the best investments I've ever made. Um, and the other thing I love is, like, you sometimes I look at, like, uh, do, you, do you read the whole story of, like, what happened? Uh, I think it was uh, Matt Honan. How that, Matt Honan, like, yep. The guys, want, some hacker wanted to, like, get into his Twitter, but they set off this whole chain of dominoes, and they wound up, like, deleting all his iCloud storage and his photos of his kids and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's the nice thing of, like, having a variety of different things. Like, I do a time machine. I have stuff on iCloud. But I also have stuff on Backblaze. And, uh, you know, even in the unlikely event that, like, I lose some of that, I'll still have, you know, my one, uh, my one emergency backup. They're a great sponsor. Let's speak of happier things. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. What a bummer. Um, really, really bring down. Can I, get a, can I get a slide whistle for that? It's never not funny. Mm -mm -mm. No, no, no. It actually gets better every time. So we're up to, uh, do you want to cover a little bit of these uh, pair-ups? Yeah. So, well, I, I picked a couple that I, um, that I thought were really good. Um, I, I continue to love Philip, and I think he's one of my, the greatest characters ever on Top Chef. And one of my favorite things about this challenge uh, is that Philip made his own butter, which I don't think has ever been done in the history of Top Chef. Yeah, and then he, he wanted a ribbon. Yeah. Check it out, man. I totally made butter. Yeah. He was showing it around the kitchen. Everyone's like, let me, let me get back to work, man. Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was a good matchup, and actually, like many of the, uh, I don't know. I mean, I have to tell you, like like we said from the very beginning, we'll probably bring this up at some point on every episode. Part of you know the drama of a reality show is a fun part of it, but to not have the drama always be the central component. Like in this case, I thought this was handled very collegially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think it was nice. I think the turn from having to work on teams together and get on the same page and, and deal with the other person and then be set against them, I think it reduced some of the the weird tension that happens uh, in these in these uh, head to heads. I mean, no spoilers, but you know, one part that I, I that is super interesting in something like this is, you know, let's say you're even looking for the tricks or looking for the twists or looking for you know the the kind of little curveballs they throw in. I don't think there's any way you could ever go into Whole Foods and adequately shop in such a way that you could prepare for every contingency plan. Not no no more than you could be on top dress and find out they've added a third garment this week or something like that. That's the point of the show. Is there's going to be those twists? I just thought this was super interesting because when these so you get these two chefs together or three chefs in the other instance I guess. But anyway, you come up and you've got. You, you go up and you've got to have a, you've got a fixed budget. You have to make decisions about, as they say, the, the flavor profile. And so you work all of that stuff out as a team. 
And, you know, and you have these ingredients that are built around in this case, like with, oh my gosh, with uh, Jason and Francis, that this is going to be a Thai based thing because that's what she's comfortable doing. And then, you know, did we already explain the twist? Yeah, well, the, uh, I don't think we did actually. So, uh, so after everyone shops and they get their surf and turf together, uh, Tom comes in the kitchen, and uh, I, see, to me, this was one one of the times. Uh, uh, if we if we want to go to our segment of uh, uh, how's how's Tom doing this week? Yeah, I thought he was pretty happy to announce this uh, to throw this uh, twist to the contestants. He seemed like he had a little uh, a little grin on his face when he did this. Yeah, I don't have much to report on Tom this week. I think he's doing well. I think it's he could stand to be a little bit closer to his razor in the morning. But uh, but I, I think he seems good. He seemed good. He he, he, he seemed like he was uh, like he was doing well. And that yeah, I, yeah. Let's admit it. That's a fun part when they go in and announce the crazy change. That that is fun. And he did seem a little gleeful about it. Yep. Uh, so the twist this week was uh, that instead of uh, working as a team, it was actually going to be a head-to-head battle where one chef would cook the surf and one cook chef would cook the turf, and they could only use the ingredients they shopped for together. Um, so for the team of like uh, Jason and Francis, where Francis. Uh, talk Jason, who's an Italian chef, into just using a bunch of Thai ingredients. Jason, at this point, is sweating because he's like, "Well, now I'm on my own, and I got to make something with these ingredients that uh, I don't understand." Right, and this—I'll <clears throat> table this for a later discussion, maybe. But one of the things that interests me is I had a question down here in our topics area where I wanted to ask you about how you feel about choosing. Like, say you've won the quick fire, and you get to choose something. You get to choose a team. You get to choose an ingredient. I'm very interested in what choices people make up front end up having an impact later on. For a classic example is if you're the lucky person who gets to pick ribeye for something. The thing is, it's hard to screw up a ribeye. Like everybody likes ribeye. There's a lot of stuff you can do with it, but that also really raises the expectations in some ways, right? Where it's like if you're stuck with with some wackadoodle dish and you've got to be really creative and you're out in the middle of the desert, that I think you can't help but kind of unconsciously give that person a little bit of extra credit for doing something difficult. Do you know what I mean? In, yeah. in that case, somebody said, you take, you take what do they call it, a spot prawn and a ribeye? Like, that's the classic, one of the classic examples of a surf and turf. Yeah, and uh, to me, that get really, that gets at the heart. Uh, I mean, I, I this gets at the heart of something I think is really interesting about food and, and something that really speaks to, like, my in, enjoyment of food, which is, like, what is it about eating a great dish that makes it a great dish? Like, where is the greatness? Is it that... Um, is it that you're eating an expensive ingredient and it's and it's prepared perfectly and you're almost like thinking about it uh, as a luxury experience? You know, in in Asian cuisine, there's this idea of like eat uh, that would be called like eating with your ego, and there's a type of Asian cuisine that's all about eating like endangered fish and the rarity and the expense and the opulence of the ingredients, and that's what makes a good dish. But in you know, but that's not how most people eat food. Um, you know, I think there's another measure where it's like, is it is it like a punch in the face of flavor? Is it just like blasted with with flavor? And that's not how. And I think you know the judges often go to that as like a, a critique, or you know, it's hard to talk about food, so they're like, it has a lot of flavor. It doesn't have enough flavor. Um, but you you know, that's not what makes food good either, because like uh, if you're going by that, McDonald's has got to be one of the best foods you could possibly eat, because what has more flavor than McDonald's? It's like a chemically perfect food designed to please a human being um, right and, and it's and it's you know it's really consistent you yeah. Know? yeah yeah it's like nothing could be more pleasing and full of flavor than a mcdonald's hamburger um but we don't think that's great food either so the great great food is something else in the experience 
it's the it's the combination of the ingredients and the way that it tastes and the perspective of the chef but there's also your own expectations there oh there's how it looks there's the aesthetics that's another whole right. piece of it but that you know to me a big piece of it is um uh there's your own expectations and like some of my favorite uh, dishes, if I think about like dishes that really stick out in my mind, it was something that was not, it, there was an element of novelty or an element of danger to it or an element of something strange that I hadn't tried before. And then I try it and I have that transformative experience and I, I taste something new and I confront my own expectations. And is that something that's in the food that makes it so great and so memorable? Not necessarily. It's a combination of factors. But I think that's where it's like if you're on Top Chef and you and you cook a ribeye, you you know, you're not necessarily at a huge advantage with the judges because are they going to remember that bite of food? They're going to like they're going to be really expecting you to, first of all, cook it flawlessly in some ways. Also, what you're talking about, not to stay off topic here, but uh, I've only been to French Laundry one time, but it was extremely memorable. And, you know, I, I think of French Laundry as almost being like the Joni Mitchell of fancy restaurants where you're like, Joni Mitchell, I'm so glad Joni Mitchell did what she did. But I hate I don't like the fact that she spawned a thousand terrible imitators. Mm. And when you get people who are trying to be a little too cute with the food, it gets like, eh, all right, I get it. I get the joke. Like, that's that's funny. Like you had two years of college. That's a great title for this peanut butter and jelly yeah i get it i get it <laughs> but like french laundry like every time you turn around they're handing you something else that's just mind-boggling and you know i in some cases yes it is obviously there's an incredible amount of care and time that went into this and other times it's just incredibly novel and fresh and just beautifully prepared, which gets us right back to Top Chef, where yes, it starts with the ingredient, but have you accounted for time? Have you accounted for season? Have you accounted for, if it's like the catering challenge, like have you accounted for how many of these you're gonna have to serve to this many people by a pool who are mainly there to do shots? Like you have to take all of that stuff into account and when you're deciding what to make. And so this was a huge curveball for everybody because then they had to go through the divorce of the surf and turf and figure out how they were gonna split up the ingredients. I don't know how fa how Philip thought he was going to be able to make mashed potatoes and the other guy make potatoes with a total of four potatoes. Yeah, and this was there was a great. I, so uh, the other thing I loved about this episode is uh, my uh, my my man uh, Richard Blaze was back uh, judging, and he had a great comment where he's like, you know, it all comes to it's exactly what you were talking about. It all comes down to manage, you know, d dealing with the expectations of the judges and your own capabilities and time management because it's like a classic Top Chef mistake that even though you get two hours to cook, you wind up serving, you know, what, what did he say? Like you wind up putting out pasta salad for, uh, you know, 300 people or whatever. Right, right, right. Um, so let's see. Any, who were, what were your, some of your top pairings that you were watching? You know, Kwame, Kwame and Chad, obviously, uh, very fun to watch. It's, I don't know. I think it's, it's kind of nice to see people who are not in, it's fun to have the playful jibing. You know, but it's nice to see people who are just talented and working together and, again, don't have it out, <clears throat> excuse me, out for the other person. I mean, you kind of couldn't help but notice that Jason and Francis were going to have some troubles. Yep. And, you know, I, I think they phrased it a little bit strongly at the, at the judge's table. I don't think Francis bullied him into doing Thai, but I think he realized that for the sake of both of them, you couldn't make something that they couldn't both pull off. Which I think is, you know, that's conservative, but it's smart in some ways. I I loved I loved Isaac and Carl. I thought they were I I loved that they were uh, uh, collegial and they helped each other and they tasted each other's food. And then when they came out and Richard was like, uh, "Did you guys ever think of like using your knowledge of what the other person was cooking to like screw over the other person?" Right. They were was was I think it was Isaac, Chef Isaac was like, "Oh yeah, we could we should have done that." Well, I mean, and clearly Isaac and Carl both could have been contenders to win this yep. week with yep. what they pulled off. And once again, Chicken Boy, I can't believe what Carl does with chicken. It's magic. 
you think of chicken as being like the like the herb food. It's like the herb protein in some ways. Like, oh, it's chicken. Like, it tastes like chicken. It's it's its own referent, you know. So, but you know, the fact that he's again, but the, what you can do with the care of how you prepare it and how it gets to the table. Also, how much did you, how much did you love? Is it Dana Cohen? Is that her name? The yeah. guest judge. She was so great. She's so saucy. Yeah. She she loves Carl's fried chicken. Yeah. But that's another, I mean, that's it though. It's like the, the judges, if you have the chicken versus the spot prawn, the judges bring different expectations to the table. And I thought that was very, very smart on Carl's part to uh, embrace the chicken and do something that, that surprised and delighted the judges and played off of their expectations. We got to talk at some, we're probably too running long now. We got to talk about time management at some point because that's so much <laughs> of what it comes down to. What's funny? What's funny? Yeah, I think we, uh, I think we, uh, I think we haven't left ourselves uh, enough time for that. You're right. But all right, yeah. just saying. No, no, I just love the, I just love that it's like, yeah, I think we're, uh, we, 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 uh, we used up all our time uh, talking on uh, tangents this week. But at some the point, thing we, that should... we, we both wanted yeah. to talk about. <laughs> I have that. Th yeah, exactly. The thing we wanted to talk about. I have that thought, Merlin, every day of my life. I'm like, man, I'm really far behind today. But at some point, I should really stop and think about uh, time management. I uh, so I'll throw out mine. Uh, I loved uh, Karen versus uh, Marjorie. I thought they, I thought they uh, uh, were a fun pair to watch, and I really uh, felt uh, terrible for Karen. She had this situation where she did not. Well, l l I'll get into the time management just just briefly, and then we can decide how much of a diversion we want to go on. But I think it's a good diversion because this is another time management uh, screw. Yeah, well, th I mean, this is the core. This was the main one. So Karen had a situation where she did not. Uh, get all of the fish uh, portioned correctly and get it on the plate. And sometimes you watch a chef screw around and they don't get all their food in the plate and you're like, good, you know what, you're, you deserve it. And I did not feel like that watching Karen. I mean, my my stomach like sunk. Like I just felt, I felt so nervous when I saw that happen. And then it turned out that she really got some redemption because she had the better dish of the two and the judges uh, all... Uh, she actually won despite not putting out a plate Ugh. of food for Padma, which I, I think she should have been disqualified on the spot. Well, she was disqualified from winning the challenge overall. Yeah, but, but I mean, I see. I think you and I disagree on this. I'm I am a strict. What am I? A strict constructivist. I, I really think that that's the rules. The rule is like if Padma doesn't didn't get food like you lost. You'd be uh, disqualified. But, but why do the rules exist? What purpose do the rules serve? The rules serve to find out which of the people is the, the guy best who chef. Makes games for a living. Yeah, but the uh, the but the rules are there to a bit. But uh, you know, if the game design is bad, you gotta you gotta uh, love when the player uh, 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 goes up against the game design. But uh, but anyway, but this is also it also touches on one of my big things that pushes my buttons about Top Chef that I just strongly do not like about the show and strongly don't like about this format, which is. In a real food service situation, so in a situation where Karen was cooking in a kitchen, if she didn't get a piece of fish on the plate, you know what? She'd take another 30 fucking seconds and put it on the plate. But the constraint of the game in Top Chef is it's done when it's done, and if you miss your critical sauce or ingredient, you're screwed. That, dri that drives me a little bit crazy, and it happens, it happens all the time on the show, and I, I, hate, I hate seeing it. It seems like you, as, a, as a contestant, you should have some sort of token where you can be like i need another minute and to add insult to injury they show the shot of two fish fillets sitting there uncooked you know yeah just it, it just drives me crazy well so anyway this was i guess this was what i wanted to ask you about this so i think one of the reasons i had such an emotional reaction to watching karen um do do good 
work, it, you know, uh, take a creative challenge, do good work. The judges all like the food she put out, but ultimately screw it up because she she sort of misjudged her own time and her own capabilities. This is a situation I run up against every single day of my life. I mean, I am I am late for everything. I never finish things on deadlines. I never have any idea how long things will take. And I, I think I've, like, mitigated against it pretty well. Like, um, uh, I've hired people who aren't allowed to complain when I'm late to everything. And uh, I don't know. Like, I <laughs> I have a variety of, like, uh, you know, my put my stuff in OmniFocus. But then it just becomes this, like, upsetting list of things I haven't done and, and uh, you know, delays and late projects and people who are mad at me. Um, so I'm always I'm, – I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, from a um, – uh, and I, I also know just from listening to your podcast, like this is something that you've you've dealt with in your own life. And I'm curious, like, what you know, it, what bro- like broadly, how do you how do you think about this kind of stuff in your life? Like, do you when you have a job to do, like, do you ever start out with a sense of how long it's going to take? Um, yeah, it's part of it. I'm, I, mean, I have to start out by introducing a wonderful thing. Most of you know, most of you know, but I'm going to repeat it. Hofstadter's law from the uh, great Douglas Hofstadter. Uh, who wrote Gerda Escher-Bach, Hofstetter's Law. It always takes longer than you expect, even if you take into account Hofstetter's Law. Of course, if you've never read his wonderful <laughs> book about recursion, Gerda Escher-Bach, I recommend you read it. And I also recommend that you read it. Uh, but the uh, but the truth is, it is very difficult to know how long it will take to do something. I mean, the short version is, I've always been terrible at this. I always would turn things in late. Part of that I could write down to ADHD, but a lot of it is also, you get a pass. If you're always running around flummoxed by life, and at sixes and sevens about what you're doing and not doing, life kind of gives you a pass for a while. And people go, oh, isn't that person busy? It's no wonder they're such a basket case. They're so busy. But if you want to survive at this, whether it's Top Chef or life, uh, I think there's a thing you've got to learn. And this is true. This is super true on Top Dress, which is that the way that you finish, and I'm not good at this, but I do know this, is that the way that you finish is what people will remember in a lot of ways. So if you end up being able to complete your thing with polish early and deliver it early, you get a lot of extra bonus coins from people. And if you're perpetually late and then perpetually like, you know, shuffling your papers around, that can be really frustrating and it it really hurts your credibility. And on a show like this, that's really all you've got is what gets on the plate or what gets on the model on top dress. So, you know, that's why, and this, so then I'll just tell you the boring answer I've come up with, which is I greatly... Uh, decrease the scope of projects based on what I think I can make a hit out of. It's a term I, I learned from my friend Michael. Uh, it's you know about managing expectations. And if, especially if you're doing client work or whether you're a boss or whatever, I think everybody has to have the space to be honest about what they think they can do extremely well. Apparently this is not true in Apple where they just do miracles every day. But by and large, I think you have to be open to the idea that there are things you will not account for in either, you know, to take the classic project management triangle. There are things that will happen with scope and with budget and with quality that are very difficult to address once they've already started. And you can't go back. If you've already been to Whole Foods, you can't change what it is that you're, you know, you can't drastically change what you're making. You're going to have to make do with what you've got. So, you know, at length, I guess what I'm saying is, like, part of good time management is not being too cleft to your original idea and a good way to do that is to, as they say, you know, underpromise and overdeliver. I think uh, that that man. I mean, that really. I think that really, you know, speaks to to like my own um, struggles with this kind of stuff. I think the other thing for me is like, um, you know, I, like I I am. Uh, it's kind of new for me to like have a, a set of responsibilities and a job and something that's successful that I have to work on every day. 
Um, and for a long time, like I got by, you know, freelancing and, and um, doing projects by when an opportunity would present itself, like I had to say yes. And that's almost its own mindset of like, you have to learn to recognize opportunities and be like, yes, I'll do that. Even if you know that you can't quite do it or it's going to be challenging or you don't have the time, you don't know how. Or, or maybe you have a, something in your gut that says something about this doesn't feel right. Yeah, right. I, well, well, and that was always my downfall with client work was like, I think I think that's a, that's a, 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 a great, uh, I think Jim Kudal said that where it's like, if you doing bad work for bad clients just leads to worse work for worse clients. And I, I definitely got myself into that loop. You, you never you never get out of it until you change. Yeah, exactly. I mean, something. Yeah, exactly. Something's got to something's got to shake up for you to get out of that, um, that sort of feedback cycle. But I think the thing that's been so challenging for me is like I'm, I'm definitely getting to a, a point in my life where like I had the constraints on my time are pretty, pretty substantial and I do need to say no to things. And it's very hard to like look at an opportunity and say, uh, I know I could do this or I have something to say about this, but I'm going to decline. And I haven't always figured out the right way to do that. And I guess I guess the analogy on Top Chef would be to it's like, well, I know I could do this technique or I could make my own butter or I could uh, do this really crazy preparation um, but you know, when, when's the right time to show the judges what I can do and when's the right time to let the opportunity go by, but get something good on the plate. Yeah. And I mean, admittedly, we're talking about two fairly different things in some ways. Um, what I'm advocating for on top chef or on top dress for that matter is to think about visualize yourself taking that plate out to the judge's table. What, what is that going to look like? Have at least, I'm not saying you have to commit hundred percent to this, but have a good idea in your mind about what the real banger is for that or the bangers. Like really think about like what's going to make that look great. And again, this goes back to why I liked Candace so much on that season of, you know, she's not the only one, but I always like somebody who sees a project being done in their head, obviously before they've started it, rather than just taking a bunch of interesting ingredients and seeing what you can come up with. Sometimes that's unavoidable, but being able to see the project as a done thing now also lets you do things like estimate, all right, if, if my tolerances are really tight, let's say I'm trying to sous vide something. Are you going to sous vide something in like half an hour? Is that really going to work? Or you know, think about any kind of technique like that, or think of some kind of technique where you've committed all of your ingredients to this thing. Okay, so if that goes wrong, the entire dish is screwed. Keep that in mind with what you plan from the beginning, because this show is all about switch em ups. But you know, the way that applies in life, I think, you know, we're both poor kids, it sounds like. And almost all of us at some point have been through a point where we've got more than one job. And maybe it's because we need more than 40 hours a week of income. But in a lot of cases, it's because we that's all we could get. And there's a funny thing in arithmetic where a 40-hour job is not the same as four 10-hour-a-week jobs. Four 10-hour-a-week <laughs> jobs might as well be four 40-hour-a-week jobs. Yep. If you account for the overhead and the dry cleaning and the travel and the interstitial time, it's not even nearly the same thing. And that's how you have to start thinking about projects. Again, back to Gertle Escher Bach, a fantastic book. Uh, if you start thinking about, you know, it's like, the, what do they call it? The coastline of Scotland problem. Like, if you've ever tried to measure the coastline of Scotland, like, the more, um, the more specific and... Uh, granular, your measuring devices, the longer the coastline gets. And that's project management. You know, if you, there's a point where you get diminishing returns, but if you actually start managing the person power that goes into what you're doing, you will realize often that you have bitten off about twice as much as you can chew. And that's experience, is learning to minimize that. So would it be great to get to a point where if I did have a little time at the end, I would try to do I mean, Max, look at how many times people go like, oh, I've decided... Uh, just out of nowhere that I'm going to make two entrees this week. And what do you get? You almost always get two shitty entrees when somebody right. tries to do that. It's like you're chasing two rabbits. You know, they both get away. So anyway, that's enough useful help. But uh, I, I just, I think that, uh, you know, a, a smart position in life is do what you have to do to stay alive, but also realize that to get better, you have to get pickier. 
And, you know, remember that, you know, each time you take on a client that's not a great client, that's at least one and probably five other clients that you can't deal with. Think about the overhead of dealing with a bad client. It's the worst thing you can do. And you're training yourself to become a low quality garbage person. You've got to, at some point, bite the bullet and work really, really hard for a couple people, help them make it so that they want to be your anchor clients and then grow once you've got some, some good clients. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and you know, I think there's the uh, opportunity cost of all of that, uh, the emotional complexity of like trying to do too much and part of it fails. And then it's like you would have been so much better served to simplify and just have the one thing go right. Um, so, uh, yes, and that was, uh, I, I guess, uh, just to jump ahead to the uh, to the end of the challenge, I think that was uh, ultimately what did in your, uh, your favorite candidate, your favorite uh, chef testant. Yeah, my favorite chef Tustin. And again, you know, the uh, the hubris of this show is like once you're exposed as, you know, in this case, she's going to be the expert on Thai cooking. But, wah, wah, you know, it didn't go so great. She well, and, and she had a lot. And of, Jason, Jason suffered, too. Jason suffered, too. But she had uh, um, uh, I'm trying to remember uh, uh, Francis had Francis had a lot going on. Uh, she had just sort of like a, I think they said like a hodgepodge, hodgepodge. of food <laughs> on her plate. And hodgepodge is not what you want on the top line of your Zagat review. Yeah, right. And uh, yeah, and uh, ultimately, like those little execution details, like uh, uh, the skin on that uh, fish, were were what uh, what did her in. Man, I was very sad to see Francis uh, lose. And uh, I guess are we going to spoil the Last Chance Kitchen for people? Yeah, but I also want to give a shout out for Wesley. I. Uh... That felt very, I don't know, it's a TV show, but it felt very authentic. I think he was felt a little broken um, when his dish didn't do oh, well. Oh, you know what? I'm so glad you mentioned this. So when Wes— that was, a, that was a, you know, it's a TV show, but a little bit Hunger Games, but that was a nice moment. My, This is one of my favorite things I think that's ever happened on Top Chef is when uh, Wesley is really beating himself up over kind of botching his dish, and Kwame comes over and kind of gives him a pep talk— yeah, uh, I think you know you're here. You deserve to be here. Yeah, I was. Th I think we should. We should. Do you think we'll get in trouble if we put that right in the episode? Nope. I think we should put that in right here. I got four f diamonds and two John Jays from Germany, and I just cooked like a commie. You're cooking with 18 of the I best chefs in the country. This is not easy. I was trained to do this, man. No one's trained to do this. I was. Yeah. No one beat me because they were better than me. They beat me because I cooked like. Hey, I know you're upset, and I know it sucks because you're passionate about your food, man. World-renowned chefs have went home on the show. Yeah, I've seen Michelin star chefs. Exactly. But well, you're better than that. Why are you beating yourself up, dude? Come on, man. Wasn't that good? It was so... It really... It made me feel so good, and it made me... Like, man, did I pick a winner with Kwame. I'm riding Kwame straight to the uh, victory uh, uh, line with this. I have tried to make a sports metaphor, but I, I don't know how racing works. I, I appreciate your trying. I, uh, I have a text file where I go in and keep track of these things. And so I have the section of chefs that are in, the section of chefs that are out, and I'm using a series of at tags, David Allen-style at tags for at out. Mm -hmm. And I got, I got a couple here for at contender. I got, uh, I got Kwame as a contender. Mm -hmm. I still have Amar as a contender. Mm -hmm. And I'm really starting to think Marjorie, Marjorie, I think she's a middle to long distance runner. I think you got to keep an eye on Marjorie at this point. Yeah, I think I think where she's in the uh, in the challenges where she's had a lot of confidence, she cooked really well. And then in this in this challenge where she was not as confident, uh, she definitely uh, suffered a little bit for it. But uh, I, what about Handsome Man? You think Jeremy's a contender? I cannot remember one thing he's made. Oh, uh, he gets Swedish fish at the movies with his daughter. Yeah, I just can't remember any food he's. I remember out. his backstory, but I don't remember his yeah. food. Jeremy was up against Philip. I think he was the spot prawn. Oh, that's right. He cooked the spot. Yeah, cooking a spot prawn is apparently is very difficult. And he but isn't it isn't it kind it. of funny? Like I have to tell you. 
oh, I should tell you about this dinner I had when I was in Washington. <gasps> My host took me out to, uh, you ever go to a Michael Minna restaurant? No. Oh, man, he's got a great steak place here in town, and he took me out to this, my, my, my host Nick, took me out to a crazy dinner at a place called Bourbon Steak in D.C. Okay. And, and I had my first ever 40-ounce uh, tomahawk ribeye. Oh, boy. It was like a lollipop. Wow. It was asinine. It was it was so freaking good. So the thing is, and, and, and again, okay, take a ribeye. It's hard to screw up a steak, right? The steak that I had in my hotel room on Friday night, it might as well have been a man's left shoe. Like it, the preparation is everything. Whereas the next night I went out and had the most one of the most expensive steaks I've ever got. It was incredible. And then I went back to my room and watched the Hunger Games and uh, and ate it like like an animal. It was crazy. Like if you had to say to most people who are chefs, taking what I think of as the advice for this challenge, pick out something that's hard to screw up that you could just prepare very well using your skills that you can localize in a lot of ways. I have to say, having a ribeye on the table, I mean, you're gonna end up doing something okay except for expectations. And what are the two some, two of the dishes that had quite a problem? One of them was Wesley's fake sous vide ribeye, right. which sounds like it was an unmitigated disaster yeah. in the quick fire. And then Philip made his brown white sauce, and, uh, and that didn't go over so well. That's all I'm <laughs> the saying. Brown white, yeah, the bur- oh, that, I, nothing makes me happier than when he was like, yeah, it's a bur blanc. And then one of the judges is like, doesn't that literally mean white sauce? <laughs> <laughs> I know bloggers. <laughs> Uh, oh, so I, I have to tell you, I think it was a good episode. I feel still feel good about this season. I'm very sorry to see Francis go. She has a lot of heart, and she's super fun. And uh, actually, both I was sorry to see LSP go, and I'm sorry to see uh, see Francis go. I uh, I doubly sad to see Francis in the uh, Last Chance Kitchen this week. That was a heartbreaker. Yeah. Um, so the the challenge in Last Chance Kitchen this week was uh, <laughs> they had their one the wonderful sponsor Hidden Valley Ranch. Yeah. Um, how Tom, you, okay. Tom, Tom, was, Tom comes out with a straight face and he's like, uh, you know what I love about this uh, Hidden Valley Ranch? They're very committed to reducing food waste. Yeah, they're all about the fresh ingredients and the lack of food waste. <laughs> are, are people in our audience familiar with Hidden Valley Ranch dressing, do you think? I I don't think I've ever had it, but I know, I mean, I see it in the grocery store. Okay, I'm a child of the 70s, and a funny thing happened in the 70s, which is that everybody got busy, <clears throat> prices were going up, and to be honest, let's let's say it, a lot of moms were going into the workforce. There was less time available. I mean, I guess this has been happening in some form or fashion slowly forever, especially since the 50s. But by the 70s, there was this movement to make stuff that seemed like you were cooking it from scratch at home. Right, so you get like the ascendance of like crescent rolls or all the Pillsbury products. Uh, you know, you didn't want to just hand your family a frozen dinner, but if you could take something and add ingredients to it and make it seem fresh. And so back in the day, you would get stuff like uh, was it was it uh, Green Goddess dressing was really famous because you'd get a packet of dressing mix to make oil and vinegar, and a cruet that came with it. So families to this day probably still have their cruets from that time. But one of the big gorillas in this space was Hidden Valley Ranch. I, I don't know if they invented ranch dressing, but they certainly brought it to the popular imagination. It does. It does not look good. Just even just uh, not having had it, but just looking at it on the show, it sort of, it sort of looks like a like a just one of those like viscous white grocery store goo dressings. You never had ranch dressing, Max? I've had ranch. I've had ranch. I'm not a big ranch dressing guy, but I've had it at like restaurants, and I think I've had ranch. I think my parents had like ranch dressing when I was growing up, but. My favorite kind of product placement in a reality show are the farcical ones. Yeah. Uh, and, and in this case, as you said, Tom came out and it was so serious. It was like it was like a very special episode of Top Chef uh, Last Dance <laughs> Kitchen. Like, hey, guys, like, did you see him like, taking out the chair and turning it around, like going to have a rap session with the kids? Because <laughs> he's super excited about Hidden Valley Ranch because they're all about these fresh ingredients and reducing... 
<laughs> reducing food waste. And and the other and then they and both of the chefs I think go for this sort of like upsetting ranch powder. Well, here's the challenge. This is the challenge. The challenge is you have to use there's like three aspects to the challenge, I think, kind of four. The challenge is you have to use only we're going to give you fresh vegetables. Okay, great. So far so good. But in at least one of your dishes, you have to use all of the vegetable with a, an absolute minimum of food waste. Vis-a-vis, Tom wants you to save your scraps so that he can decide whether you really used all of the vegetable. So Francis, I think, very intelligently decides to use broccoli, which, you know, you can use almost everything on a broccoli. But then there's another little twist to this, which is that your dish must incorporate Hidden Valley Ranch dressing mix. Ugh. I don't know if you saw here. Uh, I took a moment to go and find out what's in. For, for the people who love low food waste and, uh, and delicious fresh ingredients, <clears throat> here's, uh, here's, what, here's what you get in Hidden Valley Ranch mix. Maltodextrin. That's number one. <laughs> number one ingredient? Yeah, maltodextrin. Yeah, you get buttermilk, which I think is like dried buttermilk. Salt. Oh, MSG. That's a nice fresh ingredient. Maltodextrin, buttermilk, salt, MSG, lactic acid, dried garlic, dried onion, spices. That's good. That comes in the first 10. Uh, citric acid. And less one, less than 1%, less than 1% max of calcium stearate, artificial flavors, xanthan gum, carbo, carboxymethyl cellulose, and guar gum. And so they go at it. Yeah, so it's uh, who's the uh, what's the I can't remember Garrett. the the dingling Jay Garrett, my favorite dingling it's from like the season. Dingling. Yeah, yeah, and now props to Garrett. Uh, he had a he uh, <laughs> he made the beets, and my one of my favorite moments was when Francis tastes it and then she goes tastes like beets. <laughs> sure. And it's also because Tom ribbed him last time for not including beets in his dish. That's right. And uh, props to him. He figured out a, a legitimately extremely clever thing to do, which was he took the beet skins and he fried them, and it looked like it made like kind of a crispy vegetable skin chip. Which yeah, that's uh, clever. That's clever. I, I gotta give it to him. That is a very that is extremely clever and way to embrace the challenge. But also as a viewer, not having tasted it, uh, his uh, thing looked like a pile of beets. It was not did not look like a good plate of food. And Frances's looked really elevated. It looked like she took broccoli and it looked like she made a really attractive plate of food. But uh, Tom Tom didn't like it. It didn't eat well. Didn't eat well. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it would be it didn't it didn't see if you used well it would almost work. I think you would say it didn't eat good. Did, okay. Did it eat salty? It didn't eat in a in a high quality way. No, no you're right. That, that's that still too good. That entire episode watched weird. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> We have words, people. We have whole books full of words that you can use to describe the world as we know it, and even as we don't. <laughs> we don't have to misuse parts of speech. Oh, man. Ugh. Very upsetting. I hated seeing Frances uh, taken out in The Last Chance Kitchen. I, I was rooting for her to, uh, to to stay on for a while and uh, possibly come back. Totally agreed. Totally agreed. Next stop, Palm Springs. Dun, dun, dun. My, uh, my folks are heading to Palm Springs. Nice. Yeah. Maybe I'll go uh, visit them this year. Very dry. Very dry there. Yeah, a lot of desert. I passed out on an airport there once. Uh, so Merlin, what are we? Uh, is there anything else that we want? Let me let me look at our uh, at our notes here. Was there anything else we wanted to uh, to cover? I think we got our our uh, product placement of the week. Yeah, you know the runner up, the one that they want to be the the one of the week is the Sanford Winery. Actually, pretty canny, I have to say, as it goes. But I've got to say, and it might be my winner every week. I got to give the winner to Hidden Valley Ranch. <laughs> And, and I Tom, wish wouldn't it Tom be great? Sold, Tom really sold it. He sold the shit out of it. Wouldn't it be great if the winner got like a three-gallon bucket of Hidden Valley Ranch? <laughs> and if you can eat the whole thing, they give you ten thousand dollars. Second place is two three-gallon buckets of uh, Hidden Valley <laughs> Ranch. <laughs> 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 
Oh my goodness. We'd like you to draw your inspiration from this bucket of ranch dressing. <laughs> 